I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. If you have any tips as it pertains to this story, please reach out to tips at gangstercapitalism.com or our tip line 347-674-6980. We can ensure anonymity. So, my name is Kelly Williams Bolar. I live in Akron, Ohio. Back in 2007, Kelly was working full-time, raising two daughters while also attending college, studying to become an educator. I was newly um, divorced, and I was in college, and I was just trying to make my way. Kelly's daughters were getting bullied in their school. And then, one day, while Kelly was working and her girls were at home, their house was broken into. After that, she didn't want her daughters spending time there by themselves, so they often stayed nearby with Kelly's father, in a much safer town, which also happened to have a much better school. And so they made a decision. My father lived in the suburban area of a town by the name of Copley Fairline. So we thought it would be okay if I was to enroll my daughters into my parents' school district. So what I did was I put my father's address on their form. So they were there the first year, and everything was, you know, fine. They were really excelling. My kids were basically the only Black kids in the classroom. In the following year, I received a letter stating that they had clear and convincing evidence that I did not live in the district and that they had hired an investigator to follow me around for like two weeks. I guess they wanted to make sure that they live in the district. So that June, the judge wrote me a letter and just said, remove them. So we did, I removed my daughters. 18 months later, I received an indictment and so did my father. So we go to the court and we find out they are charging me with grand theft and tampering with documents. And the same thing for my father. I was scared and I didn't know what to expect and I didn't know, I just didn't know anything. We stood trial for a couple of days. And then of course they found me guilty. So I was sentenced to 10 days in jail And I remember being in that cell and crying and crying. I mean, my face was so swole. I cried and cried and cried for that whole entire time that I was in there. The experience was horrific. I was on probation for three years. And if I were to do anything wrong, then I would go to jail 
and it would be 10 years. I was given a fine. It was $70,000, and there's just no way on God's green earth that I would have ever been able to pay that kind of money back. I had to write a letter to the judge to tell her what I have learned from doing what I did. I just wrote to her, you know, this was wrong. I know what I did. It was wrong. I will never do this again. I just want to, you know, carry on my life and be a working mom, a provider. A felony would definitely go against everything that I was trying so hard to do. If I could have written what I wanted to write to the judge, I would have just told her that I just wanted the best for my daughters. When the college admission scandal broke, I initially thought, hmm, okay, at the end of the day, they are parents. They want the best for their kids. But these people are filthy rich. Man, these people are got money. Like, I'm so confused. How do you pay more than what that college is worth? Maybe when you have money and power, you don't look at the justice system the same. Kelly Williams Bowler was sentenced to 10 days in jail, three years probation, and a $70,000 fine for using her father's address to enroll her daughters in a nearby high school. Last week, the first sentence was announced in the college admissions scandal. John Vandemore, the sailing coach at Stanford University, who took $610,000 in bribe money which he gave directly to the Stanford Sailing Program in return for falsely designating three of Rick Singer's clients as sailing recruits, was given a $10,000 fine and one day of jail time, which the judge dismissed as time served. I have taken responsibility for my actions and I'm accepting the consequences of those actions. It made a lot of people angry. And it made me realize that when it comes to this case, there are no guarantees. It's the home run of home runs. And it works. <laughs> Every time. So, I'm going to make him a kicker. <laughs> he does have really strong legs. There's a whole lot of bad stuff that happens that isn't necessarily criminal. And then I need you to cure cancer and make peace in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. These clips give you part of the story, but they don't give you the whole story. We're going to be hearing not fewer of these stories, but more of these stories. I Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts. The team that brought you Say More 
with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to discussing this case, a popular debate is what the punishment for the parents should be. 14 have pled guilty, and of the 17 who've pled not guilty, most people want them to receive the maximum punishment possible. Alan Eisner is a criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles, and he has an unpopular opinion. These parents shouldn't do time. You put people in jail to protect the public, but on a crime like this, You have people who have no criminal history. You have people that didn't wake up that day and say, okay, how can I commit a crime? How can I game this system? No, they were directed into this system. They have been punished substantially by being indicted in this way. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their dignity. If I'm the defense attorney, I'm certainly bringing that to the judge's attention. This is a fall from grace that's irreparable. They'll never be able to recover from this, and you want to explain that to the judge. Look at what happened to this person by the mere filing of the indictment. Their life has been inalterably changed. Their relationship with their children has been inalterably changed. This is something that they will try for the rest of their lives to recover from. And that's without doing any jail time. It's the court's job not to accept automatically the mob mentality of blood. Are they going to re-offend? Probably not. Are they a danger to the public? Probably not. Have they suffered a loss greater than any jail time could give them? Certainly. Not only does Alan think that the parents in this case might avoid jail time, he thinks there's a chance that many of those who will go to trial could be found innocent of all charges. They were certainly asked to give money. But where's the evidence that the parents knew that it was going to go to a coach's pocket? This is a gift to the school. And that's what people do. That's a reported backdoor. That's how some people get their kids in school. Parents can certainly argue in this case that's what their intent was. Allen pointed out that the prosecution will argue that the evidence is on almost every one of the 204 pages in the government's criminal affidavit, in recorded transcripts from wiretapped conversations between Singer and his clients that sound incredibly damning. To be honest, I'm not worried about the moral issue here. I'm worried about the, if she's caught doing that, you know, she's finished. It's never happened before in 20 some odd years. The only way anything can happen is if someone talks. But Alan also explains that the affidavit is a highlight reel of the most incriminating moments from the recorded conversations. And it's not beholden to context or objectivity. In other words, we're only seeing what the government wants us to see. And all of Singer's exchanges with the parents were designed to indict them as he was coached by the government on what to say. All my payments. Okay. So they asked about your payments. 
one of them for when Mark Rydell took the test for your second daughter. Uh, okay. The payment that we made to help your first daughter get into UCLA through soccer. Okay. And then the payment that we made to Donna... These clips give you part of the story. But they don't give you the whole story. And even when they play the whole transcripts, that's still not the whole story. Kosing was talking to them without being recorded for months. That leaves room for arguing what's not on the tapes. What were the conversations beforehand to get the donations that are not on the tapes? What advice did he give? What manipulation was in place to get them to donate their hundreds of thousands of dollars? Okay, so here's the deal. Okay. We are trying to get ourselves like 34 on the ACT. Yeah, yeah. It could be a 33, it could be a 34, it could be a 35. Right. So anyway, the government's going to argue that since they are not disagreeing, since they are not objecting, since they don't say, no, that's not what I said. No, that's not what I understood. The government's going to take the position that these parents are adopting the truth of the statement that's made to them. That can be challenged in this case. Simply because you're on the other end of a phone call acknowledging what the other person has to say it doesn't necessarily mean we are agreeing with what he's saying. And even if we are agreeing to some of it, we're not agreeing to all of it. Simply because he says, remember when we sent this money in and we told you we would get your kid into this particular school, and they go, "Uh uh-huh. They're not agreeing that they sent this money as a bribe. They believed it to be a donation to the school. But that's a long way from a crime. Rick Singer is involved in every conversation in the affidavit. And so he's the key to making the prosecution's case. But according to Allen, the same could be said about the defense. The government's main witness, Mr. Singer, he's the center of their conspiracy case. A witness like this is fatally flawed. I would substantially challenge his credibility in a case like this. You want to explain that your client's never done this before. Your client looked to this guy for advice. He's the one who knows how to do it. They're going to go the way that he directs them. He's the person who has the key to letting them into schools or not. They don't know that he's doing anything illegal. They don't know that this is not the way it's done. They're trusting him. You really want to put your client in the position of uh, the passive participant. And their lack of knowledge about the system, that's a very important element in the case. A good defense attorney brings that up. He's the one who knows the coaches, the administrators, the test takers, the proctors. His scheme only works if he uses the parents with the deep pockets. So in a sense, uh, the parents are victims to his scheme. His motive is the traditional fraudster financial motive. You put a guy like that on the witness stand, and you can tell the jury, how can you trust anything this man says? The government is using him to continue his manipulation of these parents, You need to reject the evidence emanating from this person. If you can dirty up their case by using him, that's the way you sway the jury on your side. 
We're all vulnerable dealing with our kids trying to get into college and looking for any way to deal with that. You're going to have some people on that jury who think very similar to these parents. They have a good chance to convince many jurors that, hey, I would have done the same thing. If the sentence the Stanford sailing coach received is any indication, what can we expect the other sentences to be? Will the parents get what so many think they deserve? But others raise a bigger question. In a case like this, were these parents' actions even criminal? There's a real tendency in general these days for people, when they see misconduct, to kind of move immediately to criminal remedies. Randall Eliason is a former assistant U.S. attorney who specialized in white-collar crime. He's now a law professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. There's a whole lot of bad stuff that happens that should be condemned and is deplorable that isn't necessarily criminal. And we need to, I think, move away from this binary idea that something's either criminal or it's okay. And some of the conduct of some of the parents in these cases might fall into that category. There are a lot of problems with the way they behaved doesn't necessarily mean that the solution to those problems or to the underlying issues and circumstances that made it possible that the right remedy is a criminal remedy. In so many of these white-collar cases, we're talking about where do we draw the lines between conduct that's just reprehensible and conduct that's actually criminal. Cheating on the ACT is a criminal fraud. What about cheating on my calculus exam in college? Now, now have I defrauded the university? You know, where do we stop? Over the past few months, so much has been written about this case and everything that's wrong with the culture of getting into college. But way before Rick Singer's side door blew the lid off of higher education, Dr. Richard Weisbord was working on finding solutions. I can't really say I'm surprised, but I am troubled, and the trend lines seem to be going the wrong way. So, you know, I think we're going to be hearing not fewer of these stories, but more of these stories. Dr. Weisbord is a senior lecturer at Harvard and the co-author of an extensive report titled Turning the Tide, which took three years to produce. And he's leading the charge in trying to transform the college admissions process and reduce the anxiety that it creates with parents and children. We're trying to work with parents in some communities saying things like, we're not going to get SAT tutors before the ninth grade. We're all going to agree not to do that. We're going to ask the school to insist that kids not take more than five AP classes. We're going to really create some limits on the amount of stress that our kids are experiencing. Dr. Weisbord's team is also looking at how technology could play a larger role in the college admissions process. We've been advising Google and some other places that are really trying to turn college much more into a matching system, a dating service, basically. And people will be matched to colleges that are best for them. So I think democratizing information, getting in good information out to people in compelling ways, 
and changing the conversation so it's much more about match and less about what's the most highly ranked college are all the goals here. The reality is, and we have data now that really shows this, is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of great colleges in the country. And that if parents were really focused on the question, not as what is the most high-status school or even what is the best school, but what is the best school for my child? Dr. Weisbord points out that parents and their kids actually have a unique opportunity during the college admissions process, something that technology can't provide a chance to bond. We don't have rites of passage in this country anymore. We have very few confirmations have sort of dissipated, bar bar mitzvahs, you know, these rituals that a lot of other countries have in adolescence, where young people are in conversation with adults about what it means to lead a meaningful life. What are your responsibilities for your community? What's going to be most fulfilling to you? And in a way, the college admissions process is the only rite of passage we have for many people. I mean, for many people, that's it. And it is this, I think, incredible time to get to know your kid better, to really like help your child dig into what really matters to them. And for you to really pause and listen and, you know, help guide and scaffold that conversation. And kids can get to know themselves in a deeper way. You can get to know them in a deeper way. You can be a much more useful guide and resource to them if you do know them. But that sort of means that you've got to abandon your agenda. You can't be driven by, I want my kid to get my kid into these colleges. You really got to enter this process a different way and think about how can I engage in this process in a way that's really going to let me get to know my child more deeply, which is a wonderful thing, right? Dr. Weisbord concluded his report saying, at some point, technology might radically reform the college admissions system or young people themselves might rebel against the parts of the system that create stress and are unfair. But, he says, wouldn't it be better if we as parents and educators took action first? So I'm channeling all of this energy that would have been channeled into my professional career outside the home, into the home, and my children are the beneficiaries of that type of driven energy. That's Cassie, a mother of two living in an affluent suburb in Michigan. Cassie's a graduate of Brown University and then got her law degree at a top-tier school. She worked as an attorney for six years and then chose to be a stay-at-home mom. And Cassie says all of the type A drive that she had put into her own career was now squarely put towards making sure her children were successful students. I think one of the reasons, a major reason a person works is for validation. And the way a stay-at-home mother might be validated is how well her child does. That is an external way of gauging the job you're doing. It won't be in the raises, you know, the promotions or the big bonus at the end of the year, but it will be in how the child excels in sports or music or the end of year awards. And so suddenly that reflection is such a positive reflection and something that I think a lot of us would be seeking because there's so little of it. It's very delayed validation, really. At the end of your life, you can look back and say, oh, he or she grew up to be a really lovely person. So I feel good about that. But in the day-to-day process, the year after year, what 
other way can you gauge the job you're doing if not by how well society says they're doing? When the kids get their acceptances and sweatshirts to wear to school, I don't know what they call it, you know, sweatshirt day or college day, and, and the kids wear them, that's saying we set a goal and we reached our goal. And I get that I'm saying we and our. I think many of us feel that it is a joint effort. We did this. Yes, you know, I often hear parents say we got in as if they're going as well. And that I, the parent, has the sweatshirt as well, that they're sharing it. Look at what we've achieved in the last 17, 18 years of parenting. And so there's so few ways that you can tell the world what a good job you've been doing that instead of going out and starting a company, you've decided you'll foster your child to greatness. And it is a direct reflection on you, at least for me, for sure. For many of us have dedicated our day-to-day to their well-being and nothing else, frankly. So when that sweatshirt day comes, the children are proud, but the parents are tenfold prouder. Cassie's 16-year-old son, Bennett, goes to one of the top independent high schools in Michigan. Here, he describes his daily schedule. Wake up at 6.30, shower, get ready for school, go to school by 8. I have six classes and a free period and lunch, but I'll skip lunch to study for whatever quiz I have that day. And for my free period, I would probably meet with a teacher. After school... 345, I have to go to rowing practice. I'm a varsity rower, so we're out there from 345 to 7. I get back around 7, have dinner. Then I have a Model UN meeting from 7.30 to 8.30, get home around 9. And then I have three hours of homework till 12 if I want to, or I'm not feeling super confident about something, I'll study till even after that. And then I'll be in bed by 1.30. Schools don't really think about the stress on the kids because ultimately I think parents see college admissions as a really big deal first and foremost. And then that's what parents value in the high school they send their kids to because that's the most quantifiable way of measuring success that you could see if you're looking at different high schools. When a class has a lot of grads going to Ivy Leagues or really recognizable schools. And so if they put that pressure there, then you really strive for that. And it can really affect how the graduating class ends up looking at the expense of stressing out all the students. And I think that ends up hurting the mental health of the kids in the school. I've been thinking for years about my son's college strategy So I'm sitting there thinking, what would set him apart? How can he perform at Carnegie Hall? Or, you know, when does he start the orphanage? And where does he start it? And all these crazy ideas, you know, freshman. And my friend and I, we had the same thought. And we shared it with each other, which was that when we saw our child's freshman first semester report card, and, you know, we said, okay, It's over. Like, you know, you see that first B and you're done. We're all done. No amount of math is going to fix that. And again, he hasn't cured cancer the way I'd hoped. And he is no sort of prodigy that I kind of envisioned. So 
sort of left going, okay, well, what do we do now? How do I salvage this? And how do I make this work? And I, I totally hear myself saying, I, like I'm responsible for this and this is on me. And it's nuts. It makes the pressure really, really high. So I, I personally had to start therapy for myself and go on antidepressants. In my class, I would say maybe 50 to 60% of kids are medicated or dealing with a mental health issue in some way. And then maybe an even bigger number than that are dealing with something and don't even know about it or don't even try to address it in any way. The whole college admission thing seems like the peak of everything you've worked for in your career as a student. And it seems like when you do badly on a test or you don't do as well in a class as you wanted to, it can feel like the end of the world. There was a kid in my grade who was uh, captain of the robotics team. He had a great internship lined up, 36 ACT, uh, over 4.0 GPA in a bunch of AP classes, um, captain of the tennis team, and pretty well liked by everybody. And um, I think he must have been dealing with the stress of everything that he was keeping up and trying to keep all those numbers great for college admissions. And he ended up taking his own life. This kid was a superstar. He excelled at every single thing he tried. And this person seemed to be on the cusp of conquering the world. And yet, he's no longer with us. And it makes every parent evaluate, what is this craziness we've bought into? And what is it for? Why? Why do we do it? There was a conversation between me and my parents. We all sort of came to the agreement that the pressure coming from inside the house isn't going to make a difference as to the numbers that come back. So they just decided to become more supportive and, you know, encourage me to do my best and encourage good grades still, but not sort of place getting into a top school or getting into a recognizable school as the most important thing. And the most important thing being that I'm trying my best and uh, that I am sort of, I guess, sane. <laughs> so many things have to change. High schools have to look at the parents and say, look around, almost none of your kids are going to get into an IV. I mean, just tell us that flat out. Just accept it, learn to live with it now so that you can think of your own plan B. They don't say that at all, even though we know it, we need to know it, we should know it. They definitely know it. It just seems really fruitless. I have an IV degree and my diploma is beautifully framed and it sits dusty in my basement. For a while I thought if I or we just had that sweatshirt, it would have made this time so worthwhile. But I mean, I don't know. I hope my kid is kind and funny, and I hope he continues to do all the things that you can't gauge by his test scores or the sweatshirt he'll be wearing next year because life is long. And there's just so much more than getting into a top-rated college. In an earlier episode... 
re-described the college admissions scandal as a watershed moment in higher education. There was agreement that things had come to a head and that they needed to be changed. We were all outraged. Rick Singer, entitled and status-hungry parents gaming the system every step of the way, all of it provoked anger, resentment, and created a forum for people to vent about everything that's wrong with college. It certainly got all of us talking. But watershed moments are markers of change. And in this story, the one thing I keep asking myself is, who's going to change this process? And if we don't change it, it's pretty clear that this won't be the end of the story. Just the beginning. Since episode one, we've provided a tip line and email address for you to let us know about any additional information as it pertains to Rick Singer's scheme or others that we're unaware of. And we've been inundated with listeners reaching out, informing us of more people scamming the system. I have a tip about my former private high school and cheating. I went to the high school and our valedictorian for my year cheated on most of her entrance and final AP class exams, as did several other wealthier students. And the guidance counselors helped them do it. It was a pretty open secret that the administration did this. Over 80% of our class went to the University of Michigan or Ivy League schools. I know a parent affluent, lots of money from Los Angeles. His son somehow got into Stanford as a swimmer. But the son wasn't a swimmer. I realized that right around the time the government was doing this investigation, in October of 2018, the son decided not to go to Stanford and transferred to Arizona. Please look into this. Uh, it was an interesting situation for a student I knew joining a rowing team in Texas. Uh, dad and mom were CFOs for different major companies in Texas. I casually asked her if she was a rower. She said she had never been in a rowboat before. After she got into the school, she got injured, just like singer students. A coach had set it all up. She couldn't have been the only one he got in. I feel weird and uncomfortable reaching out. I thought about doing it ages ago, but didn't have the guts. I had a sense that an old classmate of mine's tutoring business was shady. All of my friends from high school did, too. He bragged to me that he can get literally anyone into a good school and prefers to take on only the worst cases, like it's a sport. He's like... Rick Singer. I guess that's the thing about white-collar crime. If there's an antiquated system in place, somebody's out there, right now, gaming it. Thank you for listening to season one of Gangster Capitalism. As this chapter of the college admissions scandal continues to unfold, we will keep our tip lines open and closely track how the story develops. We will also soon be announcing more information on season two of Gangster Capitalism. So stay close and please keep feedback coming. Gangster Capitalism is a production of C13 Originals. It's written and directed by me, Andrew Jenks, and Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me, Chris Corcoran, and Zach Levitt. 
Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Perry Crowell, and Terrence Malingone. Editing by Perry Crowell and Zach Levitt. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Artwork and design is by Kurt Courtney. Original score is by Joel Goodman. And the theme song is Your Sins Will Find You Out by Eli Paperboy Reed. Special thanks to Chris Flannery, Serena Regan, Stacey Whitmire, Christoph Brodeur, Debbie DeMontro, David Shakopi, Sage Milgram, and Chase Campen. For more information, go to gangstercapitalism.com and follow us on Instagram at gangstercapitalism or on Twitter at gangstercapital. You can always follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.